Our scripture this morning, we're in the the Gospel of Matthew again. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. You can find that scripture even printed in your bulletin. The Christmas season brings out a lot of different reactions, doesn't it? Most of us love it. Uh, A few of us secretly hate it, sometimes not so secretly. Uh, Some of us may even dread Christmas. There's a a uh, movie called Christmas with the Cranks. I don't know if you've seen this. It's based on a book by John Grisham, actually, that's called Skipping Christmas. And it's about a man who's had it with Christmas. He's had it with decorations. He's had it with all the money that he feels like is being wasted uh, each year just on the Christmas industrial complex. Uh, and so he convinces his wife that they should just skip Christmas this year. And use all the money that they're going to save and use that to go on a cruise to the Bahamas or somewhere. And so he convinces her to do this. And the whole movie revolves around how difficult it is in our culture to actually opt out of Christmas. Because while there are a few Scrooges among us, most of of us, or as a culture anyway, we just love Christmas. And we love this season. Uh, You know, the, the Christmas season, it used to start two to three weeks before Christmas, and then we kind of backed it up to Thanksgiving, and we backed it up to just before Thanksgiving, and now it feels like we backed it up to Halloween, right? Uh, Susan and I had kind of had, a, had, had to have a come-to-Jesus talk when we first got married about when to start listening to Christmas music, because she wanted to start like the day before Christmas, and I wanted to start like... Wait, what? I mean, the day before Thanksgiving. She wanted to start... <laughs> Thanks. She knows. <laughs> See? See my point? That's when I wanted to start. Alright, she wanted to start the day before Thanksgiving. I wanted to start the day before Christmas. And so we settled for the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> See, one. That's how marriage works, guys. That's it's called compromise. So so we but we like we love Christmas and we love the feelings of nostalgia and family and kids opening present presents and all those things that make us love it so much also make it hard for us. Some of us this year, we've lost someone, and it's hard thinking about Christmas and having to go through Christmas without that person this year. And so we've got all these different reactions that Christmas brings out in us. What I want us to think about this morning is not so much our reaction to Christmas necessarily, but I want you to think about your reaction to Jesus. What's your reaction to the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas? Or if I could put it this way, How do you feel about Jesus? Uh, One of the questions I ask people from time to time when I'm meeting with them is, so how are you doing spiritually? And I don't know that that's the best question in the world. It's not a very threatening question, at least, but the answer I generally get is something along the lines of, well, I really need to be reading my Bible more. So I don't know that it exposes very much. But what if I started asking you, how do you feel about Jesus? How do you feel about Jesus? It feels a little bit too touchy-feely for some of us, maybe. Uh, But it exposes something, or I think it would if if I were to ask that question. Because that pause that I imagine, if I were to ask you that question, or if you were to to ask me that question, exposes something about our hearts, I think. Because if I were to, to ask you the question, how do you feel about your children? Or how do you feel about your favorite Christmas present? Or how do you feel about the tiger's? Like, that would be an easy, fast, enthusiastic answer. But how do you feel about 
Jesus. How would you respond to that? See, it's easy to hide hearts that are apathetic about Jesus behind religious busyness, our Christmas celebrations, our theological head knowledge, or or even to hide it behind ethical behavior. And it's easy for us to, to hide our own hearts from ourselves. So this morning, I want us to look at three responses to Jesus. And, and for you to ask yourself, how am I responding to Jesus? What's my reaction to Jesus? How do I really feel about him? Uh, so let's read. I'm going to read this for us from Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this is God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, speak through me now, and that you would open open our our ears and our hearts and our minds to give attention to your word. 
Father, I pray that you'd help us see clearly uh, how we are reacting to Jesus and, and how we really feel about Jesus. And I, and I pray that you would work in our hearts so that we might be those uh, who truly worship Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. So three responses I want us to, to think about to Jesus. Uh, the first one is apathy. The second is rejection. And the third is worship. Apathy, rejection, and worship. Apathy. Uh, so a group of wise men show up in Jerusalem. Now, the, the Greek word for wise men was loosely used to describe a variety of men who were interested in dreams and their interpretation. They were interested in astrology and astronomy. They were interested in books that predicted the future. And so I kind of have in mind here like this, the, these guys that look like Dumbledore and Gandalf and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like that, that kind of sort of character kind of strolling into Jerusalem. And they show up because they, they have figured out that the king of the Jews has been born. And they want to know where he's supposed to be born. Uh, and so King Herod hears about this and he rounds up all the religious leaders of the Jewish people, which would be the scribes and the chief priests, and they tell him he's to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem. Now, maybe Matthew just isn't interested in telling us how the religious leaders really felt about this. Uh, so I hope I'm not reading too much into this. But, you know, it's interesting that, that the Jewish people had been expecting a king, expecting a Messiah. And here are the religious leaders, and somebody rides up and says, We think he's been born. And the Jewish leaders don't do anything. They seem rather apathetic. Maybe they think they're just going to wait until the wise men bring news back. Um, you know, maybe they think the wise men are crazy. But you think they would have been a little more excited about the news. You know, uh, imagine a 10-year-old Panthers fan being told that Cam Newton is down the street of the elementary school playing football with the kids. And the 10-year-old kid just going, oh, that's great. That's great. I hope they have a good time. You know, you, you think the religious leaders would have been a little more excited about this. They appear to be apathetic about this news. And that's still one of the ways people react to Jesus, isn't it? We still react to Jesus with apathy. Where does that come from? It comes from unbelief. We're just not sure if we buy all this Jesus stuff. It comes perhaps because we're comfortable and we don't See why we could really need Jesus? It comes because we feel like we're decent people, or at least we're not as bad as somebody else, and so we don't feel really any need for Jesus in that way. We think, you know, even if I had Jesus, it wouldn't really make any difference in my life. My life is a grind, and I'm in pain, and this is difficult, and I can't imagine, like, what this Jesus of how that would even really help me at all. Um, Steve Carell's in a movie I saw a clip from recently called Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And it's about the earth and there's this big asteroid coming and everybody's going to be killed and everybody knows it and there's nothing you can do about it. But everybody tries to go on with their life anyway because there's nothing you can do. And just the futility of that, he's an insurance salesman and he's trying to sell a policy to somebody on the phone. And it's like, it doesn't matter. And, and he's like, nothing I do makes any difference. And, and some of us feel like that about Jesus. We're like, well, yeah, okay, my life is just going to be, he's not going to help anything. 
He's not fundamentally going to change anything about my life. So we have this apathy about Jesus. And I think this apathy about Jesus in one way or another flows out of a belief that we hold, that we think Jesus is just irrelevant to my life. Jesus is irrelevant to my life. What does it look like for somebody who is a professing Christian for us to show apathy? I think it shows up in a lack of joy. It shows up in a tendency to look everywhere but the Bible for answers to our questions. Which really, when we, when we disregard the Bible, we're really saying, Jesus, your word is irrelevant to my life. It, it can't help me. It shows up in our lack of prayer. It shows up in our lack of praise. You know, we're here and we're singing. But our hearts aren't really in to the singing. We're just going through the motions. It shows up in our conversations. You know, what if if I never talked about my favorite team? Or never sang their fight song? Or never defended their virtue or celebrated their wins? It shows up in our lack of concern for those who don't believe. And you know, apathy doesn't seem like that big a deal. But doesn't my apathy about Jesus say a whole lot about my relationship with Jesus and how I really feel about him. Uh, Dan Doriani tells a story of a husband and wife. They weren't really involved in in a church or anything. Uh, They had three kids and they're kind of hitting that part of life where you start thinking about those things. You know, I'd like my kids to have a good grounding and some, some morality. And so the wife says, hey, we need to find a church. And he says... You find one you like, I don't want to be involved in that, but I'll go and I'll support this wherever you want to go. And so they go to this church and he said a funny thing happened. The guy says, every week I felt that God was speaking directly to me through the sermon. I would wonder, how does this preacher know everything I'm thinking? But I knew it was God. And so the husband became a Christian. He was converted and it scared the wife because she had wanted some, just some religion. Just, you know, let's get a little morality and structure, moral structure in our life. She wasn't really interested in Jesus. Jesus was irrelevant to her plans and to her life. Uh, Flannery O'Connor once described the South as most certainly Christ-haunted, but hardly Christ-centered. Most certainly Christ-haunted, but hardly Christ-centered. We've got a lot of civic cultural, still even, uh, civic, cultural Christianity in the South. It's what we do. But, but beneath that, what's there? Is it, is it a love for Christ or is there an apathy about Jesus there? Uh, the second reaction is rejection. Uh, the religious leaders may have started out apathetic about Jesus, but if you read the Gospels, that didn't stay that way very long, did it? It moved from apathy to rejection of Jesus. And if the religious leaders got there, Herod started there. Uh, Verse 3, he's troubled about the news of the birth of a king. Verse 8, he tells the wise men to go and find Jesus so that he can go and meet Jesus too and go and and worship him. But he doesn't really want to worship Jesus because verse 13 tells us he wants to destroy Jesus. And when the wise men don't come back to tell him where Jesus is, he is so obsessed, obsessed with destroying Jesus, he just has all the baby boys that are approximately in Jesus' age range killed. Why? Why the rejection? Why the hatred? Uh, 
Because he was the king. He was the king. And he couldn't bear the thought of another king who might challenge him. He was the king, and he wanted to stay king. You know, we we can relate to that, can't we? There's a little bit of Herod in each one of us. Uh, We we really do want to think that we're the the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul. I I don't want other people telling me what to do. I don't want this old, dated book telling me what to do. I don't really like God telling me what to do. And so we kind of want to remain on the throne where we can be the judge of what is right and what is wrong and what is true and, and, and what is not true and what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. Uh, there's a, a scene in, in Breaking Bad, and I, I haven't broken bad in a while, so I thought I'd bring it up today, uh, where Walt's built this drug empire and uh, Skyler is confronting him about it and, and she just kind of had it with the whole thing. And, and she says, if I have to hear one more time that you did this for the family... And he finally says, he finally faces reality, he says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. I was really alive. And he doesn't say this, but he could have said, I liked it. I was good at it. I was the king. I was, I was Heisenberg. I was, I was the man, and I liked it, and I enjoyed that. And we can relate to that. We, want to, we don't want people telling us what to do. We want to be in charge. There's a, a scene in, in Elf where Will Ferrell gets really excited when he hears that Santa Claus is going to show up at the department store where he works at. And Santa comes up and Will realizes that, that, that it's not the real Santa. And so he confronts him and he yanks off his fake beard and he says, You sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> And that's kind of what Jesus does to us, right? He comes into our life and he yanks off our fake beard and he says, you sit on a throne of lies. You think you're the king. But you're not the king. You're not in charge. I'm the king. And he, he presses that on everybody who would follow him. Uh, Luke 14 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is saying, your allegiance to me has got to come before your allegiance to all the people you care most about in this world. It's got to come before your allegiance to yourself. I want to run my life the way I see fit. And Jesus challenges that. You know, you can be apathetic, you can remain apathetic about Jesus if you think he's just a good man or some religious guy. But uh, as C.S. Lewis likes to say, he doesn't leave that option open to us. He says, You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, when you, when you see who Jesus really claims to be, you can't stay apathetic about him. You can either reject him, or you can fall on your face and worship him. Which brings us to the final reaction to Jesus. Worship. Bowing before him. Honoring him. Praising him. The wise men here 
They're the only ones in the, of our, our, in the scene that they actually come to worship Him. They show the right response to the King. They, they sought Him. Verse 10 says, They rejoiced exceedingly when they found Him. They brought expensive gifts and they bowed before Him. They weren't apathetic. They didn't reject Him. They rejoiced when they found Him. They gave up their own treasure for Him. And they bowed before Him. You know, I was thinking, if my team had made it to the college football playoff, uh, what I would have done to find a ticket. And then if I could have found a ticket, how much treasure would I have been willing to give up to get the ticket? And then if I had gotten to the game, how much rejoicing would be going on that I'd actually made it there? It's kind of like worship, isn't it? College football is like our, our biggest idol. That's another discussion. What, what, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you rejoicing in? Are you seeking Jesus? Are you rejoicing in Jesus? Do you, do you find yourself giving up your treasure for Jesus? You know, we don't, we don't talk about tithing a lot here. That's, that's somewhat intentional. Um, but, but the number that you write on that check every month and put in that box or give to RUF or that you give the Miracle Hill or Samaritan's Purse or here, whatever organization it is that's seeking to advance the kingdom, that says something about where your heart is. That says something about what you're really seeking. Um, do you enjoy coming together with God's people to worship Him? Is that... Is bowing before him a priority for you? Is it important to you? So, so three reactions. Uh, apathy, rejection, worship. Uh, which one of those would you say best describes your reaction to Jesus? Which one of those best describes how you feel about Jesus? And you may say, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to fall into that last category. I'd like to say that's where I fit. I want to be someone who worships Jesus. I want to be someone who finds joy in Jesus and who really makes him my treasure. But I, I just don't feel like I'm there. So how do I get there? Let me, let me suggest three things. Uh, number one, it may be that you're simply wrestling with, with intellectual questions about all of this. And those are real. And those are things that, that we wrestle with. And we shouldn't try to hide those or push those over in the corner because we're worried about what people are going to think about us. But I would suggest if that's where you are, that you start with something like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis uh, or The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Or Keller's got a new book out called Making Sense Out of God. Uh, I'd also encourage you to think about the alternative belief that exists under your doubts about Christianity. Because if you don't believe Christianity, you do believe something else. Okay, There's there's not just a vacuum there. So this other thing that you believe, how do you know that's true? And are, are you willing to test it and hold it up and examine it in the way that you want Christianity to be examined? Are you really willing to place the burden of proof on that belief? Secondly, um, don't write your doubt or your unbelief all up to your head uh, because our, our hearts are a big 
part of this. Uh, if, if you're not worshiping Jesus, it's not that you're just not worshiping. Uh, because we're always worshiping something or someone. Well, what is that for you? What's, what's ultimate in your life? What are, you, what are you always thinking about when you go to bed at night? Where are you bowing down? Why are you bowing down there? What are, what are you really worshiping? Our hearts are involved in this. And then finally, if you want to become a worshiper of Jesus, I think the best way is to keep listening to and examining the Christmas story, the, the Christian story. Uh, Sarah Silverman recently delivered a monologue uh, in which she talked about the disgusting and wrong things that her good friend, Louis C.K., had done to women. And she said this, she said, I love Louis, but Louis did these things. Both of these statements are true. So I just keep asking myself, can you love someone who did bad things? Can you love someone who did bad things? Can you still love them? Yeah, the Christian story is God's answer to that question. Can God love someone who did bad things, who does bad things? And his answer is yes. That's the answer to her question. The answer is yes, but how? It's through the cross. It's through the story of Christmas. It's through the story of a king who came down off his throne and walked among his people and taught them and fed them and healed them and then took off his kingly robes and went to the cross to die for their sins. Where God now says to us, you have done bad things. And there must be a reckoning for the bad things that you have done. But my son has come to take the punishment for you. I love you. Will you come and will you kneel in the shadow of the cross and find forgiveness for the bad things that you've done? That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of Christianity. And that's the only story that if you get that inside of you can move you from apathy or rejection to worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see that that Christmas is not just a a sweet time to get together with family or to think about uh, a baby in a manger, but it's about you coming into the world uh, so that you could one day take on our sin. It's about you uh, coming into the world uh, because there is a God who is able to love bad people. And we rejoice in that and, and pray that we would find hope and shelter in this good news and this message of the cross. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.